0: Okay, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans 8. I want to begin reading from this text in verse 1. Romans 8 and verse 1. Topic this morning, I am secure in Christ. The words of Paul, given by inspiration of the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, I want us to work our way through this text this morning, and as we do it, and just before we do it, I want to just poke away at a theme in our culture today. I, I think if I was to say, how many of you feel secure? In the world that you live in today. Okay? I think most of us would say that I feel like I live in an insecure and uncertain world. A world that is deeply affected by sin at almost every level. Politically, in the world at large, we live in a world that is incredibly unstable. Unstable. Uh, you hear talk out there about, you know, certain actions prompting World War III, and, and you realize that there are many nations that are really at each other's throats, that have a high dislike for each other, and you realize that things are volatile. When you watch the news, you don't shut it off and say, you know what, that was so encouraging. Right? You get done watching the news and you're like, you know, I don't know, I need a break, I need to go on vacation. Okay, we live in a world that's insecure. In the realm of work and jobs, I find that many people feel insecure in their work position. In the financial world, um, many people ask this question, will we have enough? And really, what will be enough to provide for the future? It's a fascinating thing to me that in the financial world, a security is a financial instrument, a stock that represents an ownership position in a publicly traded corporation, all right? And that's spoken of as a security, okay? If, if you've lived through 1987 and 2001 and 2008, you probably don't feel real secure about the world's definition in the financial realm of security, all right? You would probably define it as insecure, or we're weak in the realm of security. You wouldn't call it a security, a guarantee. You would say it's a maybe, it's a possibility. So in the financial realm, that's also true. In the realm of physical concerns, we deal with uncertainty, don't we? I, I've come to reckon with the fact that my body isn't what it was 20 years ago. Something, something happened. Okay. When I go to the dentist, I am regularly reminded now. It's like you cross the 50-yard line in life, that being the 50-year line. Okay, and you you start to find that everything, things start to fall apart, things start to change, and you start to run into difficulties and struggles, and there's this sense of insecurity and uncertainty that begins to emerge in our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this earthly dwelling, this, what some people have called our earth suit, and how it is prone towards corruptibility and decay, and it prompts a sense of insecurity about the future and about what we're going to be able to do in the future. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, outwardly we are wasting away. So you could look at various realms of life and realize that we live in an uncertain and insecure world. But the Bible says to us as believers that we are to be secure in Christ. That we are to be people who are experiencing confidence and stability in Jesus. Security is defined as living free from fear. Free from risk, danger, or anxiety. To be safe, to be confident. Okay, that's what it is to be secure. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Is it possible for us as believers to feel, to be genuinely secure? Can I quote you a few passages of scripture? The first one that came to my mind when I thought about security. 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2. Hannah's prayer to God. In response to a promise, not to the fullness of the promise, but in response to a promise. Here's what she says. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Okay, what was Hannah? She was secure because she was looking at God. And when she looked at God, what did she say? There's no rock like you. And in you, I'm secure. In this world, I'm insecure. And the truth is, all of us as Christians, we hear all of the struggles and all of the difficulties of a broken and fallen world, they affect us, and we have to retreat back to the rock and and realize and confess our stability, our security as Christians is in Christ. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, a statement of security. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. It's a promise and picture of security. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A promise that prompts security. Philippians 4 and verse 19, my God shall supply all your needs. Security. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope in Christ as an anchor for the soul, steadfast and sure. Our salvation can be secure in Christ. So as believers, we have many reasons and many promises in Scripture that should prompt and promote in our lives security. When you come to Romans 8, you find a theme that emerges. This is the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. He said, I assert that the great theme of Romans 8 is not sanctification, but the security of the Christian. And our sanctification, that work of God that is slowly and progressively and consistently changing us by the Spirit, that ongoing work gives a sense of security. What is the sense of security? God is at work in our lives. All right, it doesn't prompt the sense of, hey, I'm doing really good. All right, it prompts the sense of, you know what, if I keep trusting God, he is going to continue to work at my salvation till the day that he comes. And that, that work of God, that process of sanctification is is spoken about in Romans 8 as a means of prompting security in the heart of a believer. That we don't have to live in fear of being defeated by sin. Because God, by the Spirit, is committed, devoted to. He is for us. And as we meditate on these thoughts, my hope, my desire, is that God would, would fill us with a sense of, who we are in Christ, that causes us to become settled, firm, confident, secure. But, but not in what we can do. All right, We need to put that aside. What we can do is failure. What God can do is amazing, great, and glorious things in our lives. And when we, when we begin to capture that thought, we will realize that our security is found in Christ. Now, I want to say this, as I move through this text, kind of as a as a qualifier, okay, if talking about your security in Christ causes you to think that you can just kind of let go and not really put effort into your Christian living, if you think the fact that you're secure in Christ becomes a, a cause for lax behavior or bad behavior, okay, you're abusing the grace of God, okay, and so I want to encourage you this morning with The fact that we are secure in Christ, but that security can never become an excuse. So you go back to Romans chapter 6. What did Paul say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's response, never. Right? He's like, no, perish the thought. Says it twice in Romans chapter 6. So the thrust is what? That we are in Christ secure. That security is something that should promote affection, love, pursuit of God. Do you see? So let's just work our way through this text. Looking at reasons for why a believer, someone who has trusted Jesus, is secure. Okay, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, Christians are secure in their relationship with God. Why? Because there is for us no condemnation. Okay, now there's a fascinating thing. If you look at this verse in the original language, the first word in the verse in Greek is the word... No. Okay, so the emphasis is that there is a a strong negative. The condemnation that you and I deserve and that we fear has been removed. It's been taken out of the way. So we are, in Jesus, free from all condemnation. It's a condemnation that we deserve. It is a real judgment that should come against us. But has, in a miraculous way through the work of Christ been removed okay all of my sins and all of my condemnation that I deserve has been borne away by Christ which means what it means that I don't have to live trying to be better to win God's favor and approval okay deliver yourself from the religious mindset okay that says my relationship with God is dependent upon my behavior okay no think of it this way Let your position in Christ change your behavior. Don't change your behavior to gain a position in Christ. Let your position in salvation so overwhelm you and fill you with joy that it trickles down into the very detailed aspects of your lives. Let this truth change you. Now, what does the evil one do in the realm of condemnation? What does Satan do? He accuses you. You know what he wants you to do? He wants to bind you in guilt. He wants to bind you in despair with a spirit of accusation. And God wants us to speak back through the blood of Christ and say, I am free indeed through what Jesus Christ has done. Now, verse 2 tells us why this happens. It says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, that is the work of the spirit that brings new life, has set me free from the law of sin and death. Which is to say what? I don't have to sin anymore. Meaning I am not enslaved to the principle of sin. I have been, in principle, freed from that by the work of the Spirit and can begin to live a different life. It doesn't mean we're free from sin. But it does mean that we don't have to sin. Okay? And since we don't have to sin, we don't have to live under a spirit of and fear of condemnation, of the judgment of God. It's a truth that Satan loves to obscure. He loves to disable us with guilt and regret. And it's really what religion does, isn't it? If you think of the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, okay, it's a classic illustration of what religion does to sinful people. It pummels them. Right, They take the woman caught in adultery and they cast her at the feet of Jesus and say, what do you do with someone like that? And in their heart, what? You condemn them. What does Jesus do? Yeah, Jesus, first of all, gets rid of the hecklers. Okay, He says, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. If you're free from any need of and desert of condemnation, go ahead. They walk away. then what does Jesus say? Jesus picks her up and he says to her, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Where are your accusers? Folks, you see what happens when you meet Christ. He takes away the condemnation that you and I deserve. Religion condemns. Okay, if you think that your relationship with God is secure because you're doing well, you, you, you will have a rude awakening very soon. Why? Because we all wrestle with sin. And if you think that you're standing with God, you're being free from condemnation, is dependent upon your performance. That illusion is going to be shattered by the reality of life. All right, Jesus picks you up by the hand. He died for you. He destroyed the principle of sin on the cross and frees you to live a new kind of life that is free from condemnation. Let Let that truth settle into your life. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, we need to expend our energies on admiring, exploring, explaining, and extolling Jesus. We need to spend our time thinking about what Christ has done. And as a result of what he has done, what is true. We are free from condemnation. It doesn't mean that we don't deserve it. Okay? Because if you wait till you get to the place where you feel like you don't deserve it, you'll never arrive there. Okay? But it does mean that it has been deflected to another and borne by another so that we can say in Christ we are secure because there is no fear of condemnation. And that means that the motivation for Christian living is not guilt, it's not fear. What motivates Christian living? Gratitude. And understanding Christ died for me, He delivered me, He freed me from the burden of sin. There is no condemnation. And that's free. See, if I earned that, what would happen? I would have become proud. But if I receive it as a gift, it's, a, it's such an overwhelming gift that it humbles us. I'm free from condemnation. Think about that. Meditate on that. And then exalt Christ in that very, very powerful truth. So, Jesus frees us from all condemnation. That's one reason that we're secure. We never, if you have trusted Christ and been cleansed by the work of the Spirit of God, you never have to fear standing before God and being condemned to what you deserve. Because Christ took what you deserve. Okay? So there's no condemnation. He frees us from it, and that's why we are secure in Christ. Secondly, verse 3. It says, What the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened... By sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son. Now, this verse is basically a gospel summary. Right, what's it talk about? It talks about the incarnation, Christ coming, sent by the Father. It talks about Him bearing our sin and freeing us from it. Right? It's 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 a very brief, succinct summary of what the gospel is. Christ came Christ came to be a sin offering. He died as a sin offering. And as a result of his work, I am free from the consequences of my sin. So what, what is the basic thrust of this? The law, Paul says, could not save from sin. All right, why? Well, because on my best day, I can't keep the whole law. So if I say... I'm going to earn my salvation by religion, by self-salvation, okay? By my effort, I will earn a place with God. What's going to happen? Well, Galatians 2 and 3 expound this idea that none of us can keep the law of God perfectly. So what happens? The law that I'm trying to keep continues to condemn me, right? Right? And, and, and it, it kind of works like what? It kind of works like a mirror or a measuring stick that, that we contrast ourselves to. And we realize that even on a good day, if the law is a perfectly straight line, I am a somewhat inconsistent line. I am never perfect. Okay. And so that law does what? It reveals my sinfulness and causes me to flee to Christ to say, Jesus, you have to rescue me. And God sent his son to be what? That's what it says in verse 3. He came to be a sin offering, one who takes Tim Hof's guilt and condemnation, bears it on himself, and takes it away. the result is what? That we're free from condemnation, and we are rescued from what we actually do deserve. The law could not save us. Jesus came in flesh to save us, and in his flesh, he condemned sin. He destroyed the stronghold that sin had in your life. And he freed you from all of its consequences and destroyed the power of death over us. I want you to listen to what Hebrews 9 says. Hebrews 9 and verse 12. The verse that talks about the absolute amazing nature of Christ's work. Here's what it says. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and cats, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, and in that he obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, folks, what is eternal redemption? Eternal redemption means that it is timeless, it is a redemption that is without boundaries. So, the chiefest of sinners can be delivered from their sin by the work of Christ. That's the kind of the, the thrust of what Paul is going after here. He has obtained for us eternal redemption by dying, as we said last week, instead of us or in our place, bearing the consequences of sin that we should have borne. Okay, let's move then into verse four, because this kind of starts now to get to the heart of the text. What you're going to find in the rest of the chapter is that the Holy Spirit is going to be mentioned 22 times. Okay, 22 times the work of the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God, the deliverance of the Spirit of God becomes the drumbeat of this text. Okay, so what Christ has done for us is now applied to our lives by the work of the Spirit. That becomes the the thrust of this text. So verse 4 says this. It says, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Okay, now he's going to start to set up a contrast here that'll pick up in verse 5 in detail. Okay, either we're living according to the sinful nature, our old way, pre-Christ, or we're living as a new man, post-conversion, in Christ. Okay, and that becomes the contrast that he, that he sets up here. Okay. So what's the first thought that emerges from verse 4? It's this. The Holy Spirit's presence ensures victorious living. Okay, the Holy Spirit's presence ensures or guarantees victorious Christian living. Now, to understand why verse 4 is here, you kind of have to drift back into chapter 7 and remember what chapter 7 is about. Chapter 7 is about this struggle. Of Christian living, wanting to do good and being unable to do it, right, wrestling with what it, what it really means, and, and in the end, what does Paul say? Paul, in, in an expression of frustration and a desire for hope, says, "Who will deliver me from the body of this death, from this proneness to wander who will who will set me free from it? And then verse chapter eight does what? It begins to answer that question about this this the nature of this wrestling. So when you look back into chapter seven, verse twenty four Listen to what Paul says. He says, what a wretched man I am. Uh, When does he say that? He says that years after his conversion. Uh, What's he admitting? He's admitting that I'm still, I'm wrestling with becoming everything that God wants me to be. But in that wrestling, I realize that I'm not capable of living this life for God in my own flesh. I can't do it. Okay, that's the bad news. The good news is what? Verse 4 is the good news, right? And and it's really the answer to this question. And it's why he says, look, in Christ there is no condemnation in spite of the struggle of chapter 7, in spite of the wrestling. There is no condemnation. But the the question becomes why? Well, because God sent his son to destroy sin in the flesh. But verse 4 goes on to say that God sent his son by the Spirit in order that the righteous requirements of the law... Now listen to this in order that the righteous requirements of the law that I could never fulfill might be fully met in us who walk, and I think this is the key, who walk or live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now see folks, so what is he saying? He's saying the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a born again believer assures us of victory. Now, is Paul bragging? No, he's not bragging. What's he saying? He's saying, the success that I am experiencing overcoming this battle of chapter 7 is owing to the fact that God has taken a residence in my life in a powerful way so that what happens? The requirements of the law are being fully met. Now, this moves in two ways. The requirements of the law are first fully met in who? In Jesus Christ. All right, he kept the law of God perfectly, But I think Paul in verse 4 is talking about this this process of sanctification that begins in those who are filled with the Spirit of God. When he comes, he assures a victory. He never comes without changing people. Someone says, I have the Spirit of God, but my life never changed. Well, you don't have the Spirit of God then. Okay, because true conversion always yields to and assures that there's going to be a shift of direction in the life a change of attitude, and a change of behavior. Okay, And, 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 and I, I love verse 4 because in a sense it points to what Christ has done. He fully satisfies the demands of the law. But it also talks about the outworking of the Spirit's presence. What is He doing in you? He's sanctifying you. He, by the Spirit, is assuring your progress in holiness. So that by the Spirit, we begin to experience progress that we could never achieve in our flesh. Okay, and it just becomes so important that, we, that as, we, as we think about this text, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy people. And it is a progressive, ongoing work that brings ongoing change, and that ongoing change is evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence, which is evidence of true conversion. Okay, The fact that you fight against sin is an evidence of conversion. Here's what I want to challenge you to do, however. Make sure that you don't fight against sin in your flesh. Make sure you fight against it by the Spirit. Okay? It's so important that we don't do this on our own. So the thrust is something like this. We are not changed or saved by law-keeping, but by the Spirit. And when the Spirit takes over a life, what does He do? He begins to produce out of that life change, works that honor and glorify God. Okay, He gives you a heart for service. He gives you a love for your mate. He gives you a desire to forgive your enemies. He begins to change you. And that is the overwhelming evidence and assurance of victorious living by the Spirit. Now, verses 5 through 11 set up an extended contrast. Okay, verses 5 through 8 are about life without the Spirit. And if you look in verse 7, it says that the mind apart from the Spirit is hostile to God. Verse 8, it is unable to please God. Okay, so that, that's the essence of 5 through 8. There's this, in the flesh, there is this overwhelming sense of inability to change. Okay, then when you get to verses 9 through 11, just to, to kind of give you an abridged version of this. When there is life in the Spirit, what happens? Let's just read through verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone, or I'm sorry, if the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. Okay, and what's the thrust? The thrust is that when the spirit of God comes in conversion, you're born again, you're made alive. This is what Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born From above, Nicodemus, you must get off the religious treadmill. And you must trust in the power of the Spirit of God to give you a new heart and new desires, to give you eyes to see life as it really should be. The result of the Spirit's presence is that He ensures victorious Christian living. So whenever the Spirit of God comes, what always comes with it, what always comes with the Spirit of God is change. What always comes with the Spirit of God is obedience. What always comes with the Spirit of God is service to others. Always. What always comes with the Spirit of God is a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness. Okay? And the Spirit does what? He ensures that that change comes. So if you say, Pastor Tim, I I have not experienced that. I don't have that. I want to encourage you. Go to God and say, God, forgive me. I place my faith and trust in Christ. I believe in Him. Forgive me. And by the Spirit, change me enable me to do the things that I've been struggling to do and finding myself unable to do. Now, verse 12 and 13, I think set at the center of this text. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, brothers, in light of the Spirit of God living in you, verse 11, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, 12 and 13 becomes a very powerful text because it moves in two ways. It talks about what God does. It talks about what we do, doesn't it? So Paul begins the verse by saying what? He says, brothers... That There's the assumption of what? There's the assumption that you're part of the family of God, that you've been born by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, right? That's the assumption. Spirit of God is present. He says, brothers, we have an obligation. Okay, so that's our part. All right, we have an obligation to do something, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, meaning we are free from that slavery. We're not obliged to do sinful things. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so I want you to watch how this text moves. Our part in this text is to fulfill our obligation to put to death, verse 13, the misdeeds of the body. Anything that would take us away from honoring and glorifying God in our life, we're to starve that, to put that to death. God's part is that all of this is done by the Spirit. Okay, here's the connection. Okay, your salvation is a work of God. And I think in the context of evangelical churches, we would all agree, salvation is fully and completely a work of God. Right? That we're saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we make no contribution to that salvation. It's a gift. Here's where we struggle. When it comes to the issue of ongoing holiness or growth in holiness how do we tend to think i think most of us tend to think god did his bit and now i'm going to do my bit god has saved me tim will change me okay and it is a deceitful lie from the evil one okay please understand what i'm saying okay okay in this process of becoming all that God wants us to be. Shedding the old nature. Becoming a new man in Christ. A new woman in Christ. A new teenager in Christ. In that, what happens? God does something miraculous. He puts you into a new family. And in that family, what does he do? He parents you to righteousness. So, God disciplines. We need to respond to that, right? God prompts and works by the Spirit. We we're told to put to death But we're also told to live by the Spirit. So the process of sanctification requires what? It requires effort on my part. But that progress in holiness is not totally... It doesn't rest on my shoulders to do it all. I can't. Do you see? And I think that's why in verse 4, he says the righteous requirements of the law can be fully met in who? In us. Well, when you read chapter 7, what do you come away saying? You come away saying, this is a hard life. I can't do it. That's what Paul's saying. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Who will produce in this redeemed sinner righteousness? Paul's conclusion is not, I will. He had lived that life, Philippians 3. He said, in regards to the law, perfect, spotless. You want to keep a list of rules, Paul said, I can keep it with the best of them. But that did not change me. Do you see? So, so what's the thrust of the text? The Holy Spirit, he, he assures our progress, but he also enables the authentic change in our lives. Okay, so that, so that as we strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we do it because God is at work in us. He doesn't save you and then say, you know what, good luck. I gave you all the training you need, now you go and do that. Honor me. And Paul said, I'm trying, but I can't. And, and as he records this beautiful text, It is saturated 22 times with the word about the Spirit of God who comes to take up residence. And as we yield to the work of the Spirit, what happens? He begins to change you. And as we put to death the deeds of the flesh, He begins to change you. We must take the initiative in this effort. And I want you to notice how strong this picture is. He says... In the second half of verse thirteen, if by the spirit you put to death okay that 's that 's not a pretty picture to put to death is what it 's to slaughter it 's to massacre it 's to destroy so by the spirit, what do we have to do? We have to wage war against our fleshly sinful tendencies right and and if as you read this. Paul says, you know, he says, you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. That, in my mind, causes me to think about a text from the Gospels. Jesus said to his disciples, as they began to understand the broader ramifications of discipleship, they thought it was about a kingdom, about them, and all the good things they would get. And Jesus says, no, if you're going to come after me, what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay? And folks, here's what I want to say. I want to say that that idea of taking up the cross, as we've talked about before, is a radical concept. Okay? It's not that we just deny ourselves. No, it's that we put ourselves to death so that Christ might live in us. That we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. And we, by the Spirit, are inclined to live the life that God wants us to live. Okay, so I'm saved, yes. But there's a process of progressive holiness that God wants to engage every Christian in for the glory of God. And what I love is the fact that he doesn't let us on our own and say, you know what, I'll see you in a few years. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, John 14 through 16, but also I'm going to come to you. And when I come to you, I'm going to make the impossible possible I'm going to allow you to experience change that you can't take credit for that when it's done you're not going to be able to say look what I did because you're going to be like Paul saying oh what a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the bodies of this death who will get me out of the sinful habits and patterns Paul says I thank God through Jesus Christ so the spirit of God comes to reveal Jesus and to do what to shape Jesus in us So we're not alone. So what do we need to do? We need to walk in a daily dependence upon the work of the Spirit who enables authentic Christian living. John Stott challenges us in this text to see evil as evil and to truly put it to death, to be ruthless in not looking, in not touching, in not going, to have in our lives a plan of action for pursuing holiness. In Psalm 1, The word of God says this, blessed is man that does not walk in the way of sinners, doesn't stand or or doesn't walk in the way of scoffers, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, right? What's the picture? He, He doesn't enter into a process of hanging out with, spending time with, and sitting down with, okay? There's a plan of action that we need to put in place to pursue by the Spirit the holiness that God intends for us. When I think of that, I think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph had a plan. When Potiphar's beautiful wife grabbed this attractive young man, what did he do? He didn't walk with her. He didn't stand there. He didn't sit down. He didn't lay down. He ran. 2 Timothy 2.22, you know what Paul says? Paul says, flee youthful lust. When temptation of any kind comes, run. Have a plan of action in place in which you cooperate. So the Spirit of God says, okay, Tim, not that. Run here. Okay? That's the the, the idea. Okay, that we make, Romans 13.14 says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the desires of it. Okay, that's our part. God enables the fullness of that plan. He enables the outworking of that plan. Our response is necessary and our response to God's call to holiness is empowered by the Spirit. Okay, and that's the part I want you to understand this morning. Our obedience is necessary, but our obedience to be successful must be empowered by the Spirit. Okay, and let that settle into this process of Growing and becoming secure in Christ can only happen because of the work of God that is present in our lives. The last thing the Holy Spirit does to bring security into our lives in this text is found in verses 14 through 17. He says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. You did not receive the Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you have received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. But folks, why pursue sanctification and holiness? Because God has saved you. Because God has unleashed his spirit in your direction to ensure and assure progress in holiness. That's what he's done for you. And as he begins to work in you, you begin to experience victory over the struggles of Romans 7. What happens? In your heart, you begin to say, Abba, Father. You begin to say, "God, thank you. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for working in me. Thank you for rescuing me through your Son." Verses one to four. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for awakening my heart to desire righteousness, even though I can't get there on my own. I rest in you to take me there. Do you see? And as you pursue that, what you will begin to enjoy more fully is a relationship of love with your Father. That's where this all goes. It's not obedience for obedience sake. It's not holiness so you can be better than other people. It's all of this directing us into a relationship of deep affection with God, where our lives are being changed so that, what do we say? We start to say, not God, we say, Father, Abba, Papa, Daddy, affection. And when do we say that? Like Paul does in Romans seven, we say it in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the struggle. We cry out and we say, "God, I, I feel insecure. Make me secure." Sunday night, Friday night, two weeks ago, I got a phone call at twelve twenty a.m., which is always a bad thing, right? I ignored the call because sometimes we get these weird calls, and like. Couldn't go back to sleep. I was like, pick up the phone. Didn't have my glasses on, so I was trying to read the caller ID. I said, you know what? Better call that number. Called the number. And it was my daughter Jessica's voice. That got my attention. And uh, why did she call me? me? She had that accident encounter with the deer. All right? Hit a deer at 65 miles, miles an hour, was shaken, and wanted to talk. Now, there aren't many people that my daughter would call at 1220. Right? Who did she call? She called her father. Why? She assumed that I would answer the phone. She was wrong. <laughs> But when I realized it was her, what happened? I, I didn't have to say, you know what? Should I call her or not? Now, well, the affection of a father is what? It's instantaneous. You move in that direction. She didn't sit there and think, boy, it's kind of late. I don't know if I should call my dad or not. Now It never went through her mind. What did she do? With boldness, she placed a call to someone that she knew cared about her. That simple. What could I do? I live seven hours away. I couldn't do anything. But I could listen. Now, folks, listen. God can listen, but he can also dispatch help by the Spirit in your time of need to be sure that you can be successful in your Christian life. That success by the Spirit will never make us proud, okay? It will never make us feel like, wow, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty good. In our flesh, it may make us feel that way. But when you know it was God, it doesn't make you proud. It humbles you, and it causes you again to say, Father, please, continue to work out that progress in my life. Continue to change me in my marriage. Continue to change me in relationship with my kids. Continue to change me in my workplace. Do that in me. And why are we saying that? Because I can't do it. He's called us to pursue something that we can't pursue, but what has he done? He sent the Holy Spirit to enable and to assure progress in the Christian life. And that work of the Spirit is called a down payment that guarantees the full future outcome. That is the essence of security. Do you see? The fact that God is working out his salvation in us by the Spirit is the essence of security. If God is for us, Paul will later say what? Who can be against us? Right? Talked to my daughter for a little bit, settled down, quieted down the tears, and, okay, why? She talked to her dad. That's all thought, okay, we'll take care of this. I'm going to go down pick up the car tomorrow. It's total, okay, blah, blah, blah. Some people that'll hop out with that. It, it's fine. It's taken care of. She doesn't have to do anything. Right? So tomorrow what I'll do? I'll tow a car down to her, bring her car back, and she just goes on. Folks, that's exactly what God does for us. In the struggle, in the fight, we're passing a wretched man that I am. You we need? We need to go to God and say, God, work out this by the Spirit in me. Give me a heart that is sensitive. So here's the question for you. Will you be sensitive to the work of the Spirit of God? Will you, as Paul says here, live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit? Will you follow His promptings and follow His direction? He has come to assure and ensure your progress. But it will not happen apart from your effort. So if you sit back and presume on grace, you'll never change. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. Don't go out there and fight it alone. Go out there in the strength that God provides and begin to experience the progress that is part of the joyful Christian life. What is it? It's the idea that my life can be different, not because of my effort, but because of trusting and resting in the power of God. May God just, just, just in our hearts, give us this commitment. This is God. You point in the direction, and I will go. Last Sunday morning, we sung a song, I Will Follow. Where you lead, I'll go. And, folks, may that be our prayer as we leave this morning. Say, Holy Spirit, you point in a direction where you want me to serve, where you want me to help others, where you want me to see sin defeated in my life. You point in a direction. My answer is yes. And, folks, if you do that, you can live secure. Do you see? Because the Spirit of God is prompting that desire and He's also fulfilling that desire as you yield to His work in your life. Don't resist Him. Don't fight Him. He is for you. He is for you.